my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. And that is literally the moment I'm like, I have got to work on this problem of autonomous robots being able to interact with anyone and everyone in a way that can collaborate with us and help us. And believe it or not, nobody was really working seriously on that problem. And that became what's known known as the field of, of social robotics. And it was about if you're going to interact with people, they need to be socially intelligent, they need to be emotionally intelligent, they need to be able to communicate in natural ways. Um, they need to be able to collaborate with us in human-centered terms. So that was the beginning of it. That's Cynthia Brazil. The mission she set for herself three decades ago began with the creation of two desktop robots that I had the fun of meeting and interacting with, Kismet and Leonardo. And that mission of hers went on with the creation of the first commercially available companion robot, Jibo which had the misfortune of competing with Amazon's Echo and its assistant Alexa. As Cynthia continues to create robots that can be understanding, helpful companions, she's also focused on making sure we humans understand both the strengths and the risks posed by the artificial intelligence that powers not just her robots, but also so much of the rest of what we now encounter every day. This is really going to be fun. We first met about 20 years ago when we were doing the show Scientific American Frontiers. And a lot has happened. You've done a lot in those 20 years. So welcome to the show. Thank you. You've been working on social robots since you were a graduate student, right? Yes, way back (laughs) in the early 90s. (laughs) What drew you to that? When I first came to what was then called the MIT Artificial Artificial Intelligence Lab, um, I was fascinated by the field of autonomous robots. So when I first arrived, again, this is the early 1990s, uh, my advisor, who was very famous, Rodney Brooks, um, was pioneering this new kind of robotics called behavior-based robotics. And it was all inspired by biology. And and in fact, insects were kind of his his muse at the time. And, you know, I was a Star Wars kid, right? So when I was, you know, 10, I first saw the movie Star Wars, was blown away by, you know, the droids and fell in love with them. And then I remember when I first walked into Rod's lab, I felt that Star Wars moment wash over me where I thought, my God, it's like if we were ever going to see robots like R2-D2 and C-3PO, it's going to probably start in a lab like this because they were all robots that had to do their own sensing, their own decision making, their own behavior. 
So that's where it started for me. That's interesting, starting from that creative dream. Yeah, absolutely. And then flash forward. So when I came uh, as a master's student, the project I was working on were these legged insect-like robots. Now these, it turned out, were precursors of what we now call micro-rovers. So Rod wrote a paper called Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, A Robot Invasion of the Solar System, which was advocating for, if you want to explore planets, don't send up one or two very expensive rovers, send up lots of small, inexpensive, autonomous robots. So I didn't know it at the time, but all those insects and the projects I were working on were really early precursors of that. So, so flash forward, he got involved with JPL and NASA, and in 1997... Right, Sojourner is landed on Mars, and Rod's influence was very much a part of that project. And I remember, so now I'm a PhD student, right? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, get, let me get this straight. We send robots into the ocean to explore the oceans. We send them into volcanoes, and now we've landed them on Mars. Why are they not in our homes? I grew up with this vision, <laughs> right, of robots o- a- amongst us. And, and that is literally the moment I'm like, I have got to work on this problem of autonomous robots being able to interact with anyone and everyone in a way that can collaborate with us and help us. And believe it or not, nobody was really working seriously on that problem. And that became what's known known as the field of of social robotics. And it was about, if you're going to interact with people, they need to be socially intelligent. They need to be emotionally intelligent. They need to be able to communicate in natural ways. Um, They need to be able to collaborate with us in human-centered terms. So that was the beginning of it. You know, when, when we think of robots in the home, for a long time, I think most of us had a picture of a robot that you say to, get me a Diet Coke. <laughs> and it goes to the refrigerator and comes back with the Diet Coke. You know, it's, it, but you're talking about an emotional intelligence, which sounds really hard to do. I mean, <laughs> it's, you've got chat GPT now with with what looks like some kind of emotional response. It, 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 it appears that you're talking to a person, but it doesn't have arms and legs and eyes and eyebrows and doesn't move its tongue. Right. But that was one of the things that struck me in your lab when I saw Kismet. I think, I think Kismet was the first robot you produced. It was the first. And I couldn't get over how it had control of its tongue. <laughs> and lips. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> And, and eyelids and, yeah, everything. And it was interesting because we, as humans, responded to it, even though it was cartoon-like. Yep. We don't need many details to evoke a response in us, apparently. No. And so much of Kismet, you know, I did, at the time, I characterized it as, as a mechanical cartoon. And principles and methods from, from animation actually were, you know, one of the important um, kind of disciplines that I drew from when I designed Kismet and I, I was exploring those initial emotive behaviors and recognizing that, you know, you know, frankly, like you, we watch Aladdin and you can make a magic carpet emote emotion and, and a sense of, of purpose. And, you know, so Kismet was very much, I think, in that early kind of sweet spot of minimal but sufficient cues to give people enough of a sense of, of mental state, mental life, that they could just interact with the robot as if it was a living thing. And it was the first, it was the first, I think, again, autonomous social robot that started to 
break open this whole new space of relational, social-emotional interaction with technologies. When you worked on Leonardo, you were helping build a character for a Spielberg movie called AI, Artificial Intelligence. Is that right? That's right. Now, you could program in, you could code for aspects of the character, but you also wanted the robot to learn as it went along, almost like a child learns as it grows. That's right. So you needed AI. Was that the first introduction of AI, or had, was, were you using AI in Kismet, too, before that? We were starting to use, I would say, artificial intelligence techniques in Kismet. So, you know, Kismet could recognize facial expressions, could recognize sounds and words, could recognize human expressions of, of some categories of, of emotion. So that is AI. You know, it was more what you'd call maybe supervised machine learning. But Kismet had those. So my work with Kismet was noticed by Kathleen Kennedy. And I didn't realize it, but so she was, of course, the executive producer at the time working on on, on the movie AI, right? The Spielberg Kubrick movie. So I came on as a scientific advisor, essentially for that film. And through that, I met Stan Winston and I went to his studio and was blown away, you know, by all of the, the amazing animatronics that he was creating at the time. And Stan was, I mean, he was such a fascinating, you know, personality because he, every movie he chose, he chose it because he wanted to push the envelope as what was possible. And he mm. was always devoted to what is going to give the actors, the human actors, the best, most compelling performance. So in many ways, you know, we had the shared dream, I would say. This was very much a passion project where he wanted to build what he called a real character, right? Coming from the field of acting and story and animation and animatronics, I called it a social robot. But at the end of the day, it was the same thing. It was an autonomous entity that could understand, interpret, express emotion, engage with people. Like that was his dream too. He was just coming at it from his discipline. And so when we came together on Leonardo, that was the vision was, you know, build now in this case, Leonardo was, I call it the Stradivarius of, of robots, you know, like a typical robot of the day, like Kismet had, I don't know, 15 motors in it. Leonardo had like over 70, you know? So when you talk about what it would have taken a, a team of puppeteers, right? So when you talk about animatronics back then, it was almost as if these, these robots, these animatronic robots were a sophisticated instrument that teams of puppeteers had to come together and dynamically control or coordinate their kind of sections of body parts, essentially, to bring that whole character performance to life. It's actually quite fascinating. And so if you wanted to build a robot that could be more scalable, let's say, even on a movie set, if you could bring more autonomy to that. So maybe the one uniform performance, the one mind performance. Tan would always talk about this. You're going to have a stronger performance if it's one mind controlling the acting versus seven, right? Hmm. So when you talk about a robot like Leonardo, it literally would take seven puppeteers to bring it to life. He's like, if I could have one human articulate the performance, but have the, 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 the you know, AI encoding on the hoods, support that performance, understand the intent of that performance. That's what he also envisioned as kind of a practical tool for, for, for movie animatronics. But his real dream was like Teddy, like real Teddy of AI. And that was really kind of my, my dream too. So it was bringing the artificial intelligence and the learning and, and, and that artificial life to a robot. So what are you looking for from robots? What do you, what do you hope to make them become? The work that I do in social robotics 
continues to be how do we really design them to be not only socially and emotionally intelligent so people can interact in a very human-like way and have these systems be able to understand and engage us on our human terms, but then what does it mean to actually live with these technologies, right? When you think about our devices and, you know, chat GPT, you use it for a session mm. and then you put it down and it, it doesn't know you. It doesn't remember you. It's just, you're a generic human, right? Robots brings you this opportunity of like, you live with them. You know, it's like the R2D2 dream, right? It's like, they can get to know you. You can build relationship. And what is the value of that relationship where you may have goals or tasks that you want to be able to do that, a robot could help you with. So, you know, if you're an older adult, being able to live independently might be one set of tasks, being able to, to, to help you navigate a space, to be able to help connect you to friends and family. There could be any number of things uh, a, a, a robot could help, could help you with in your home. For kids, it could be increasing learning and education. For, it could be health for adults of all ages. And so when I look at the work I do today, I, 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 design these robots to be essentially kind of helpful companions. And I use that word very intentionally because most of what people create today, Alexa and, you know, Google Home, like they're called digital assistants. I call my technologies helpful companions because they do bring in the sense of social and emotional engagement, which can play in a very important role in how we psychologically engage in learning, making healthy decisions. Right. So a lot of my work is saying you want to support our human experience, our human social emotional experience, because when you do, people can engage more deeply and often become more successful. Tell me about your startup, Jibo. Jibo was envisioned to be the first family robot. By the way, this was before Alexa came out, right? So this was a really pioneering idea. There was no Alexa on the marketplace. There was no Google Home, right? This is before any of that. So far field speech, right, was part of the vision to, to be able to talk to things about the robot and have it be able to help you do things. So instead of being a camera, the robot's a photographer, right? Instead of being an e-reader, the robot's a storyteller, hmm. right? So they're all, there was kind of this twist on like, there's kinds of applications, but the robot had this sense of agency and personality in how it did everything that had this sort of heightened different kind of, you know, emotional experience, you know, of, of the role of this technology in the family. So that was the, the vision of it. When we came out with our Indiegogo campaign, it was like, it went viral, like nobody had ever seen anything like it before. That was the summer of, I think, I forget, maybe like 20, what, 15 or something like that. That winter is when Alexa was announced. <laughs> so this, I mean, the Echo. The Echo was announced. So, so everything that we were doing, this social robot that could take pictures and tell stories and had visuals and all of this body movements. Now, now you had this tube that could talk. But the challenge was you had all these developers and all this infrastructure at a $40 price point. I forget what the original price point was that people saw it as kind of the, the it wasn't all they recognized it wasn't a robot, it was kind of a, a near neighbor competitor. So at the end of the day, I think we had, we had a winning concept that was pioneering in a lot of ways, but we hit the market at kind of the unfortunate timing. At the time, people weren't sure if this social experience was interesting. Now fast forward to today and ChatGPT, oh, well, guess what? Yeah, people are really willing to have 
conversations with AI. So we, I mean, I had known that through my research for a long time. I knew the positive things you could get from this kind of, again, experience around health and learning and all of these things. I mean, I, I had seen all of that because I was developing it, but the rest of the world didn't quite believe it at the time until now you have something like, you know, again, the, the echo comes out and like, oh, people are... Turns out the screen on a phone is the main interface. Voice is actually an, inter an interesting interface. Or now it turns out people are willing to have like conversations with a robot, you know. So anyway, you know, flash forward, I think a lot of the, the early work that I had done is, is, is now becoming accepted as, frankly, a kind of like the next paradigm, right? And meanwhile, although Jibo wasn't as successful as you hoped in the marketplace, you're using it to train kids now, aren't you? Exactly. Yeah. So Jibo is helping kids learn about AI. Jibo is helping kids learn all kinds of things. Jibo actually, in the midst of the pandemic, we were looking at Jibo as a positive psychology coach, as kind of a preventative thing around, because we were starting to see increasing incidents of, of, of depression and mental health. So the thought was not that it would be your doctor, or your clinician, but if Jibo could help teach you positive psychology skills and practices that, by the way, are proven interventions, that if you do things like expressing gratitude, um, it helps elevate your mood and helps you more emotionally resilient. We took these classic kind of curricular interventions and just had the robot engage people in these exercises and teach them these skills. And we actually did find, you know, in a pretty carefully controlled experiment that that people's mood increased. They had a better sense of, I can make positive changes in my mental health you know, it was, it was, it was about empowerment and resilience. So again, was that, I think- Was that at all different ages? All different ages. So yeah. So our first study was with uh, undergraduates and our second study, we sent robots out all across the country. So people from like early twenties, all the way to like eighties. And the fascinating thing again, is we did this study in the height of the pandemic where people are social isolating and people will tell us it's like, Having someone, and I'm putting that in air quotes, here acknowledging my existence, they're like, I can't tell you how important that was when I was isolated. So, you know, we have some pretty compelling videos of, of people, um, again, engaging with the robot in these curriculum in terms of how they've learned greater self-compassion, right? How they've learned to express gratitude and how that's elevated their emotional states in a, in a point where it's, you know, it was, it was pretty rough on a lot of people. So there's actually a, a lot of, a lot of good that these technologies can bring if they're designed in the right way. Listen, I'm at the stage now hearing you talk. I want to know if you can send me one. <laughs> okay, it's, we'll get your address. We're going to get your address. <laughs> sounds pretty good to me. When we come back from our break, Cynthia Brazil talks about the need to ensure that all of us, but especially children, are educated about both the positives and negatives of artificial intelligence. That we become, as she puts it, AI literate. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons 
And I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Cynthia Brazil. We picked up on how people, especially kids, learn to react to her deliberately endearing robots like Jibo once they know a little about the AI controlling the robots. I think I've heard you say that after a little exposure to what's going on under the hood, they don't treat the robot like a person as much as they do a pet. Yes. A playful, loyal pet. So I kind of call it the, the, the Disney sidekick effect. <laughs> so, you know, animated Disney movies, are, of course, you know, are, are, are well known for having the not quite human creature, you know, the anthropomorphic creature sidekick. And I think in a lot of the robots that we've come to design, we almost very intentionally want to create them with that mental model because we want them to be your supportive psychic. The human is the protagonist. The human is the hero, right? You want to be the hero in your life. But your sidekick can be a delightful, helpful, engaging presence. But, and we have found this because we also looked at this question quite a lot. Even young children, when they interact with, so we do playful learning companions, like you said, fluffy, playful learning companions who teach kids, say, early literacy skills through educational games, they are not confused. That robot is not like their friend. It is not like their dog. I mean, they definitely are very savvy about saying, this is a different kind of thing. It's a robot thing. And, and it can express, and we can share these kind of, almost like, affectionate, right? Like a pet-like interactions and so forth. But the children are not confused that it's somehow going to replace or interfere with their other known relationships. And I know that's been a long concern of this work is, are you going to replace or somehow damage children's relationship with other children or adults? And I can tell you, like, kids are pretty savvy. That That is not what we're saying. But we do want to make sure that we design these systems as they get more sophisticated to hold those values in the design itself, right? So what is the right role? How how does the robot reaffirm what its kind of uh, uh, 
space of conversation makes sense. So like when I did my startup, Jibo, for instance, we made very intentional the design decisions that there were certain kinds of things that the robot could engage in, you know, the little black and forth kind of personality-based conversations people have. But if you ask the robot questions like about religion or other things that really only people should be able to have, you know, a real opinion about, the robot would say, I'm just a robot. Basically, he would do it in a charming way, but basically say, you know, I'm just a robot. I think, you know, those are really important questions that other people, like you should talk to other people about those things, right? So the robot was very careful in the design of the robot was very careful in positioning the kinds of things that felt we felt as designers were appropriate interactions versus ones where you really needed to talk to another person, especially things around health or risk. Like the, we would very quickly, like, you've got to, like, you've got to talk to a doctor, you've got to go to a hotline. Like we were very, very clear on, there were boundaries, basically there were boundaries of what we felt appropriate conversations could be. And the robot's personality reinforce those boundaries. Well, I'm glad you have such a good list of positive outcomes because when you talked when you talked about living with the robot, I started to get nervous. <laughs> because like ChatGPT, the robots you're making are very human friendly. We respond to them. I'm worried about misplaced trust. Mm-hmm. I, I think of the uh, the interaction between a reporter a few months ago and chat GPT where he had a long session, which is yeah. no longer permitted because you can, you can trick them into doing things they shouldn't do. That's right. And the chatbot was finally urging him to leave his wife and do sex with the chat GPT. Do all kinds of crazy things, yeah. Yeah, talk <laughs> about a hallucination. Yeah. You must have given a lot of thought to this. Absolutely. The social and emotional intelligence, I mean, it's, it is just a core way that we understand and engage with the world. And when you understand those principles and, and, and the, the power of that, honestly, you can design systems that are intended for beneficial outcomes where people are empowered and people in charge. You can use those same technologies and principles to do nefarious things. Let's face it, you can. So in my work now, a really important part of my program is how do you help designers and engineers uh, engage in responsible, thoughtful, ethical design practices, which gets down to education? Because you know a lot of a lot of the way we traditionally trained and educated engineers, they didn't think about these issues at all. But now they actually do. They actually do need to be educated around these issues and these challenges, so that we are designing things with more intent and more responsibility. And then the other side of it is I have a lot of work. We have a new initiative called RAISE at MIT, and it stands for Responsible AI for Social Empowerment and Education. And it's about educating everyone. We call it AI literacy because we are using these technologies. AI is in social media. It's in our devices. It is poking us, nudging us, shaping our thoughts. You know, we hear more and more about that. And so... But we don't, we don't really know how pervasive... AI is in our lives, do we? So that's the whole point of, of this next big effort is how do we educate and build awareness so people understand what AI actually is and don't talk about it like ascension ether that you know, the media tends to do, but how does it actually work? How does it need to be designed so you can mitigate risks of bias? We've seen bad examples of that where you know privileges certain groups over others and the decisions and the data that has been trained on. 
hallucinations, to your point, which could be unethical, incorrect, unsafe, right? Like people need to understand, they need to demystify this technology in, a, in an appropriate way that people can make informed decisions on how they want to use it themselves and how they want it to be used in society. We also want people to know and be educated so that this is a technology that all kinds of people, and the tools are getting to the point where this is the case, even children can start to create things with artificial intelligence. And you see it on social media, right? So how do you educate children to, to, to grow up knowing they, they are empowered to use these technologies to build positive things for themselves and their communities? So this education piece, this AI literacy piece is also really critical. And I would say it's for everyone. It's not just for computer science students. You know, AI traditionally has come from computer science. It's become part of digital citizenship. So I do a lot of work in that space now as well. So it's not only in how we design our technologies and the, and the underlying algorithms to be more safe, you know, to be more trustworthy. It's also people. We need to be more informed and more educated on, on how to use these technologies and how we want them integrated in society. So, so that's how I spend a lot of my work now. When you teach children to be AI literate, does that involve, I guess that involves making things with AI. Exactly. Does it yeah. change the way the kids respond to the robots if they make a robot do things that they themselves first imagine them doing and then they do it? Is there a, a more sophisticated view of the robot? How, how do kids typically, I guess it depends on the age to some extent, but how do kids typically respond to f fluffy things that talk to them and smile at them and so, encourage them? So this is fascinating. So we have, we have looked specifically at this very question. So we, we do these, you know, these experiments, these studies, right? So we'll have children interact with a social robot just in the home, you know, like an Alexa, whatever, but just, it, just experience it, just interact with it. We look at that compared to children who live with the robot, experience it, but then also get a curriculum, an explicit AI literacy curriculum where they learn a little bit about how AI works and, and risks around it and, 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 and privacy and, you know, kind of a, a core curriculum. And then we also have added another arm where they program the robot, right? And we do various combinations of that. So here's what we found that's fascinating. When you look at how they interact with the robot and how they kind of like the robot, kind of the interpersonal aspect of the robot, it doesn't matter whether they only interacted with it or interacted and got a curriculum or interacted, got a curriculum and program the robot. The social emotional experience doesn't change. Hmm. However, when you talk to them about it, they are much more, if they've had the curriculum, they are much more reflective and thoughtful and understand these issues of, okay, so now where is that data going? And who hmm. is using that data? And hmm. is that something that I try, right? So they are much more. At what age? So this was middle school. Uh -huh. These are middle school students. Yeah. So, you know, 11, 12, 13. So, so kids are pretty savvy. I got to tell you, they're, you know, if they're using social media and smartphones, I mean, they're pretty savvy. So, so it's fascinating that, again, the human experience, again, it's, it's something so deep and profound and what it just means to be human, but they are able to reflect and consider what are the implications of interacting with a technology like this? And I want to ask, like, is this data staying on the robot? Is this data going up to another company? Who is that company? How are they using my data? <laughs> you know, all those things, right? But they're, they're pretty savvy about it. So this is exactly the kind of appreciation, I think, and, and again, AI literacy, we want all people to have. 
So it may not be possible when robots of the kind you're describing become ubiquitous. It may not be possible to give every child training in how to cope with it, and not only children, but grown-ups too. And if you live with it, you're not just on a short session as you are on ChatGPT. You're like in the old days where you, you have hours and hours and hours to say things to it like, let's do a pretend. What would I have to do to make a bomb? You know, what, 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 what do I have to do? Let's pretend we can fly. And the, and the, the robot is programmed, it's trained to say, you can do it, don't worry. Now, I'm giving you a crazy extreme example. You must have given thought to that. How can you prevent that long-time association where the robot is trying to please and encourage and maybe encouraging the, the human to do something dangerous? So these are what we'll all call the, the guardrails. And I think a lot of the, the, the advancements in responsible AI now are exactly around this question of how do you design these guardrails so that we have safe, trustworthy um, AI systems. I will say that because AI is <laughs> everything everywhere all at once right now, there is actually quite a lot of interest in bringing AI literacy actually into the classroom. Mm. So we have a program that's called Day of AI, where we have a bunch of short format curriculum, literally from kindergarten all the way through high school. And we've started to educate and train teachers on how to bring these curriculum on AI literacy to their students. And I can tell we've only done it for like two years now. It is growing like gangbusters. Our first year in 2022, we thought we might just start in the United States. You know, maybe we get in, I don't know, maybe 30 states, you know, blah, blah, blah. We ended up being in like over 100 countries hmm. um, that very first year. So there is a hunger and a curiosity and a need to say, both teachers and, you know, saying, I need to understand this stuff. And my students need to understand this stuff because, again, the AI genie is out of the bottle. It's, it's not about computer science anymore. It's about how AI is transforming what to be digitally literate means and what it means to be a digital citizen. And that's really what our curriculum is about. It's about AI is for everyone. Everyone needs to have an appropriate kind of understanding of this to understand what it is, how it works, it's, and its responsible use. And to give, honestly, optimism and a sense of empowerment to students that they can actually shape the future with these technologies uh, to build a better world for themselves and for their, 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 their communities. So I am actually encouraged that we can bring AI literacy to millions and millions of students all over the world. Well, that's encouraging to hear. I'm really glad we talked. We're running out of time. But we never end our show without doing seven quick questions. First, first question is, of all the things there are to understand, what do you wish you really understood? Wow. Okay. I am fascinated by kind of all the recent science around longevity. So is aging a disease? And if it is, <laughs> it could be curable. That fascinates me on all kinds of levels. I, I want to understand that more. <laughs> Send me a note when you do. <laughs> How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? You know, I can tell you that as a, as a professor and as an educator, I think 
a lot of it for me is about dialogue, right? It was like, well, okay, so here's here's these facts. Let's talk about that. And let's talk about alternate viewpoints. I, I want to engage in dialogue. I don't want to just tell people they're wrong. I want to engage them in a dialogue. And hopefully they're open enough to have that dialogue. And I'm hoping that I'm open-minded enough to have that dialogue that both of us to come can come to a better a better resolution of that. Great. Third question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oh, man. What's the strangest question? Well, uh, one of the strangest requests I've had. I don't know if it's a question. <laughs> but I got a, I got a written letter one day of someone volunteering to be an experimental subject in my lab to be turned into a cyborg. <laughs> oh. So I don't know if that's a, requ- a question versus a request. And I remember kind of thinking, okay, this person's watching a little too much science fiction here. <laughs> <laughs> oh. How do you deal with a compulsive talker? You know, I try to always be respectful and polite and I try to nudge <laughs> or shape the conversation in a way that I hope uh, can benefit as well as, you know, people, again, some compulsive talkers know they're compulsive talkers and they, they, they can appreciate and cash themselves. Others may be not aware of that. But I, I, I always try to, to help nudge things in a way that is a, a, a mutual benefit. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> okay, next. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met before. How do you begin a genuine conversation? You know, I'm starting to learn that one of the best questions to start with is like, what's your story? Mm. It's like, what's your story? Where are you from? What tell, how'd you grow? Like, what's your story? And it is, it's a great way to start a conversation. And people, you know, are fascinating. They're fascinating. And many of these times, like I discover something about people, I, I just had no idea, right? I had no idea they'd done all these amazing things. And it's, you wouldn't unless you open up that conversation. Like, what's your story? That's great. <laughs> okay, next to last, what gives you confidence? What gives me confidence? Having my, I'm going to call them my really authentically supportive cheerleaders, but also critics. Right. So the people around me who I know have my back and care deeply about me, but they are also people who will kind of, you know, speak truth to me when it needs to happen. Right. So so I get confidence from having people like that in my life to know, like, if I'm I'm going on a weird path or something, they're going to help pull me in. Right. Great. OK. Last question. What book changed your life? Wow. Okay, well, I'll tell you the movie that changed my life, as you probably already guessed, was Star Wars. You know, you know, the, the question is maybe outdated by, by the presence of movies, and someday the whole question will have to be, what robot changed your life? What robot changed your life? But science fiction, right? Just the ideas and the envisioning of the future. I mean, mm. I, I, get, I get so much inspiration um, from, from those kinds of books and media and so forth. Um, you know, they, they often warn us as well as inspire us, and I find that very valuable. That's great. That's what I find valuable about this conversation. You inspired me, and you also, you also expressed a caution that I'm, I'm very glad to hear. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. That was just great. Wonderful. It's great to see you again.
This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Cynthia Brazil is a professor of media arts and sciences at MIT, where she founded and directs the Personal Robots Group at the Media Lab. She's the MIT Dean for Digital Learning and the director of the MIT-wide Initiative on Responsible AI for Social Empowerment and Education, or RAISE. On her MIT website, you can meet some of her personal robots in action. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. This is the last episode of Season 23 of Clear and Vivid, but Season 24 and our 300th episode is just around the corner. Next week, I'll be back with executive producer Graham Chedd for a look ahead at the new season, which begins with a further exploration of those important issues surrounding AI that Cynthia has just been raising. But also, we'll talk about an ocean trip revealing billions of inhabitants we know almost nothing about, and why it's probably not a good idea to think we can escape Earth and go live on Mars, and pondering whether we really have free will. And Tom Hanks. All coming up next season on Clear and Vivid. See you then. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare Exclusive Color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.